gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my apartment, Le Chateau T-Dot with Samson, and we are broadcasting to you from Southwest Durham, North Carolina. Folks, we got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. This is an 11-page episode. We have got criminal justice stories from quite a few places, but I swear to God, I could have done the entire podcast with just New York and Florida. You'll find out why in a minute. Uh, but first, wanted to apologize. I promised y'all there would be a bonus episode with a Law 140 on student rights when they are searched, and we just never had a chance to record it. So that is going to be the Law 140 topic in the back third of this episode. We'll go over the Supreme Court cases that cover uh, the rights that students have when they are searched at school. Uh, also, make sure that you join the conversation online. If you haven't yet, you can follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. I am at Greg underscore Doucette. That is G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. Feel free to leave a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. You can join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash Fisk. And in particular, if you like what you hear, please make sure to leave us a written review or give us a five-star rating on the iTunes store if you don't mind. That helps us uh, basically find new subscribers because when people are looking for podcasts they might enjoy, uh, looking at those reviews is something that they all do. So let's go ahead and get into the meat and potatoes of the episode. We're going to talk a little bit about politics and uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up, you might recall from last week's episode, I mentioned that the president had not commented at all about four Green Berets who had been executed in Niger by ISIS. They had been ambushed. And it turns out, on Tuesday of last week, the uh, the president took my advice and said something, but in typical Papaya Potus fashion, uh, Donald Trump managed to fuck it up royally. So Trump called the widow of Sergeant LeDavid Johnson. So he is one of the soldiers from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, stationed here. He was killed in Niger. And as part of that conversation, you know, you got to keep in mind, the Cheeto in chief has all of the empathy of tinfoil. I mean, the guy just does not have compassion or the ability to relate to normal people. Uh, so in the conversation with this widow who is on the way to go pick up the body so that he could be buried, uh, said that, quote, he knew what he signed up for. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not that's the case. If you look at the number of uh, soldier fatalities, it's actually not that common in terms of the total number of people in theater and how much they serve. Yes, we've had a lot of people die since 2001 in the war we've had wars we have had since then, uh, but it's not something that you expect, you know what I mean? But assume for the sake of argument that he did. That's not something you say to the widow as she's going to retrieve the guy's body, Jesus. So it turns out that Florida Congresswoman Frederica Wilson was a friend of the family the uh, Sergeant Johnson had actually come through a mentorship program that she had put together. And she was in the car with the family on speakerphone when this was all going on. And she made a comment about the fact that the president sounded like a dick, that he couldn't remember Johnson's name and said that he knew what he had signed up for. Well, this, of course, 
prompted uh, the president to be outraged and commented twice on Twitter, probably more. I, I haven't been keeping up with it, frankly, but at least twice on Twitter. Where he denied ever saying anything. Uh, there's footage of him being asked at a cabinet meeting if he said it. He insisted that he didn't. And then in the most really surreal kind of press conference, they trotted out Chief of Staff Kelly, former general, used to be a Marine general, uh, previously the Secretary of Homeland Security. We'll talk about some of the shit that he got into there in the criminal justice portion of this podcast. Uh, but y'all might remember that when he became Chief of Staff in the episode that we had on that, I made it pretty clear that I didn't trust the guy because he did not follow the law as Secretary of Homeland Security. And I was just waiting for a moment to see what's going to happen when he's involved in this political world. Well, he, he basically takes the fall for the president, which is the chief of staff's job, says that he pitched this language to him, discouraged the president from calling in the first place. But if he was going to call uh, when his son died in combat, a general friend of his told him that his son died doing what he loved, knew what he had signed up for, et cetera, et cetera. Well, of course, that got all totally fucked in translation. That's how Trump managed to screw it up. Uh, but then Kelly, when it came time to actually answer questions, only called on reporters who are what we call gold star adjacent. So a gold star family is a family who's had a loved one killed in combat. Uh, and gold star adjacent means that you are one of those family members or a close friend or something of that nature. So he decided that he was only going to call on reporters who were affiliated with dead soldiers, in essence. Uh, but the weird part about his speech is that he spent a lot of time criticizing Congresswoman Wilson, saying that he had been at an event with her where she had claimed to have secured funding for an FBI building uh, before she'd ever been in office. Well, of course, she's a congresswoman, so this particular appearance was recorded, the media got the record, and she never once mentioned anything at all about securing this funding. It just never happened. Kelly made the shit up. Well, at a follow-up press conference the next day, the press decides to ask a question about it, whether or not Kelly's going to apologize or correct the record or whatever else. And the press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the daughter of Governor Mike Huckabee, uh, actually offered this as a response. If you want to get into a debate with a four-star Marine general, I think that that's uh, something highly inappropriate. Now, for go for a minute, the irony of that comment, that questioning a general is highly inappropriate, coming from a woman who works for a president who said that he knew more than the generals about ISIS and who during the campaign criticized one of the generals who spoke on Hillary Clinton's behalf. We're going to let that part ride. But focus on a couple of things here. One, facts aren't debatable. There's no debate about facts, okay? There's video evidence of this particular speech that Wilson supposedly gave, and there's nothing in there about her talking about money. That's a fact. It's incontrovertible, undisputable, that's reality. Now, you can argue about conclusions to be drawn from facts, you can argue about opinions derived from facts, whatever, but the facts aren't up for debate, period. But then on top of that, it's the job of the press and the public to question everyone that works for them. That's the nature of having a government. Generals are not above scrutiny, not above discussion, just because they happen to serve in the military for a long time. That's how you get to become a four-star general. They're not immune from scrutiny or discussion just because they happen to have a loved one who died in combat. Ask the cons about how that turned out for them. Okay, so this idea that the White House is trotting out the chief of staff, 
a political actor, someone getting a political paycheck, and trying to make him insulated from any kind of rebuttal or commentary or scrutiny or anything else because of his military service for which he was paid, served, and retired is ludicrous. So, of course, that has continued on since then. The uh, the conservative aspects of Twitter and social media, uh, someone basically fabricated a Facebook status from the widow, Ms. Johnson, claiming that she um, was setting the record straight and criticizing the congresswoman for making public comments. And it's the, the thing was obviously fake on its face, okay? First, it just doesn't pass the smell test that this congresswoman who's a friend of the family would suddenly get blasted on social media. Then, if you looked at it, the picture of it had a square profile picture, even though the code on Facebook uh, changed almost several months ago now, where when you look at the news feed, your profile pictures are actually round. Uh, but then on top of that was the timestamp. So it was uh, posted... October 17th, which was that Tuesday, uh, at 3.27 p.m. Now, depending on which media outlet you listen to, Trump either called around 3.30, which is what the New York Times reported, or 4.45, which is what's in the Miami Herald, somewhere in that ballpark. Well, in either case, both of those are after 3.27. So she, this, this supposed Facebook post, if it were legit, would have taken place before the phone call even took place, uh, which by definition would have been before the congresswoman made any comments. But then her, Wilson herself spoke around 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. That was her first public comments about the phone call. So when people pointed out that the timestamp didn't work, the response is, well, it may be the person who took the screenshot was in a different time zone. Well, here's the problem. In order to get a time zone where you're at 3.27 p.m., when the earliest corresponding time after Congresswoman Wilson's comments would have been 10.27 p.m. Eastern time, you have to go forward 17 hours, which means you cross the international date line, which means it would have been October 18th as opposed to October 17th. Uh, and then, so obviously that was fake. The conservative Trumpists insisted that it was real, went like wildfire all over Facebook, Twitter, and everything else. Uh, then, of course, today, the uh, Ms. Johnson confirmed to ABC that she didn't write it. How, how crazy is it that this woman, grieving the loss of her husband, having to deal with her daughter and trying to keep their life together as best they can after it's been shattered by this news, having to deal with the bullshit of debunking a fake Facebook post, uh, but confirmed that it was fake. And then, of course, all of the Trumpists who decided that this was a real thing pivoted. And one of the guys, uh, I don't even remember his name, but I talked to him on Twitter before he blocked me. Uh, he posted a tweet that says, I researched this an hour before I tweeted it. The press made the Facebook post into the story. The real story is the rodeo clown, referring to the congresswoman. Uh, these people are such fucking, this is what the Republican Party has become under the papaya potus. We have completely lost all sense of decorum and grace and honesty and integrity. All that shit is gone, you know, and, and we're okay with it. We celebrate it. It's just all about, you know, fucking over liberals and Democrats and pissing off, you know, the right folks, essentially. Uh, and it's, it's ridiculous. And my thoughts are with Mrs. Johnson, her family, and really the families of the other three service members that were killed. They're having to go through a terrible time, and this all detracts from all of that. So, 
my heart goes out to them, and I hope all of you uh, focus on what matters here in that particular situation. Uh, speaking of the GOP and how we've completely devolved into this just disgusting clusterfuck of bile that it has become, uh, Kevin Williamson is a writer for National Review Online. He's, in my opinion, the best writer they've got. They've got Ravy. Uh, five or so writers that are any good. He's number one by far, and then there's a big-ass gap of nobody before you get to number two. Uh, He's got a piece out entitled The White Minstrel Show, talking about how uh, essentially the working-class whites, as they're called politically, or or the white working class, depending on what order of the acronym you want to have it, uh, has basically adopted the habits and the styles of the white underclass. Uh, And I'm going to just give you an, it's a long story. I'm going to give you the link for it. I recommend you read it, but I'm going to give you an excerpt to kind of talk about, um, give you a taste essentially of what he's writing about. He says, quote, the populist rights abandonment of principle has been accompanied by a repudiation of good taste, achievement, education, refinement, and manners all of which are abominated as signs of effete elitism. During the Clinton years, Virtue Inc. was the top performing share in the Republican political stock exchange. Fortunes were made, books were sold by the ton, and homilies were delivered. The same people today are celebrating Donald Trump, not in spite of his being a dishonest, crude, serial adulterer, but because of it. His dishonesty, the quantum cardinals of Virtue Inc. assure us, is simply the mark of a savvy businessman his vulgarity, the badge of his genuineness and lack of political correctness, and his pitiless abuse of his several wives and children, the mark of a genuine alpha male. No less a virtue entrepreneur than Bill Bennett dismissed those who pointed out Trump's endless lies and habitual betrayals as suffering from moral superiority, from people on high horses, and said that Trump simply is a guy who says some things awkwardly, indecorously, infelicitously. Thus did the author of The Book of Virtues embrace the author of Grab Him by the Pussy. We need a Moynihan report for conservative broadcasters. Uh, For our folks who aren't from America, the Moynihan Report was one on the state of the black family back in the 1960s. Uh, It's named for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a Congress critter, who was uh, one of the people on the committee leading that compilation. So go read the story. It's great. Um, And by great, I mean it's... It's shitty subject matter, man. It's something where I've, I I told y'all before, I've been a Republican since before I could vote. You know, I helped my, uh, my girlfriend back in high school start a teenage Republican club back then. Uh, I've worked as a vice chairman for the Wake County Republican Party. I ran as a Republican candidate for Senate last year. And seeing the total clusterfuck that the party has become, you know, I left back in November, but I still feel betrayed. Even now, a year later, I still feel betrayed by all this. So definitely go read it. Um, Okay, so criminal justice news. We have got a lot of criminal justice news. So what I've done is we normally have court news first, because I don't have any circuit opinions that were particularly interesting, I've taken the court news for the district courts and put them under their respective states so I can make it easier to get through all this. Uh, but first, the general research stuff, stuff that's not state-specific, the big one, and uh, what I'm using is the podcast title, is out of the New York Times, we now have scientific confirmation of the first rule of Fisk. 
So longtime listeners will know the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. It turns out there was a massive seven-month randomized study of police in Washington, D.C. on who was given body cams and who wasn't. And then at the end of that seven-month period, they tracked uh, whether or not there was a difference in police behavior. And what they found is that there was no difference at all whatsoever. The police were just as frequently abusive, regardless of whether they had a body cam or not. There were just as many citizen complaints against them, regardless of if they had a body cam or not, and so on and so forth. So this is something where a lot of people have been wrapped up in this notion that body cams lead police to act better. And the basis for that was a very short-term study in California, only used a dozen or so officers. And the thing that people forget is that technology cannot trump policy. We have an entire structure set up in this country that insulates police from the consequences of their bad choices. It's something where if they happen to do something wrong, they're unlikely to ever be charged. They can't be sued civilly because of qualified immunity. On those exceptionally rare occasions where they are charged, they almost always get undercharged compared to the rest of the populace, or they're found not guilty because a jury refuses to convict police, or they'll waive their right to a jury trial because they know they've got a friendly judge. So when you take all of this stuff into play, you basically get more bad conduct because the bad conduct goes unpunished. It's no different than when you're raising a child and the child does something stupid and you don't do anything to correct it, they're going to continue doing stupid things. They never learn the lesson of their stupidity. You know, when a kid goes to put his hand on a stove, it burns. So they learn not to do that again. When a police officer decides to gun down an unarmed person just because they can, and that goes completely unpunished, you're not going to be surprised if they do it more than once. So this is a situation where this study has kind of thrown some cold water on people and made them realize that technology isn't a cure-all. Now, with that being said, the interesting part about this study is that it also proved that the so-called Ferguson effect is bullshit. You've had a lot of police unions, a lot of officers claim that because of anti-police protests, uh, police are less likely to do their jobs. Crime is going up because of it and so on. Well, what these body cam studies show uh, is that there's absolutely no behavior changes at all. Police are continuing to do exactly what they were doing before the protests, before the body cams and everything else. So every officer should have one. Every beat officer should have a camera, not to change their behavior, but to provide documentation of what they're doing. So when they inevitably fuck up, when the first rule of Fisk comes back into play, there's some kind of evidence for it. So we'll give you a link to that story. It's a fascinating read, and I'm not at all surprised by the results. So it's uh, I'll give it to you. Check it out. Out of CNN, there's a story on police dash cams. They're now being outfitted with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and that sort of thing, training the machines to identify suspects for the police. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, out of 538, they've got a lengthy story on the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's allergy to statistics, math, empiricism in general. Uh, it's rooted in this gerrymandering case we had recently, uh, talking about what's called the efficiency gap on, on how partisan a map is. Uh, but it also goes into some of the court's history, and it raises some valid points, because there's a lot of math stuff that tends to highlight certain prevalent problems that we are able to pretend don't exist when we don't rely on the math. Key example, I did not believe driving while black was a thing. Didn't believe it. And in the friends that I've talked, you know, remember last week, Dave and James, they'll tell you, I didn't believe it. 
until I saw a website that I've talked about before, opendatapolicing.com. Check it out. And all the site is, is every single traffic stop over a 10-year period in North Carolina. That's it. Doesn't have any editorial commentary. It's just every stop, and it tracks the race of the officer and the race of the driver and whether or not they were searched and whether or not any contraband was found. And what you find from all of this data is that racial profiling happens. Not only that it happens, it's fucking prevalent as hell, and a lot of times can be tracked down to certain officers in the individual departments. So that type of stuff needs to be used more often in court cases, but we don't because by definition, lawyers are afraid of math. You know, it's, it's often there's a joke that the only math lawyers know is thirds. You're either taking a third of a case on contingency uh, or you're billing in 30-minute uh, increments. I guess now it's down like five-minute increments nowadays. But um, so, you know, I'll give that story to you. Check it out. It's 538. There's also a related story not directly related, but same topic. Uh, ProPublica has a piece on the Supreme Court cases and their factual errors. So not only is the Supreme Court afraid of using math, uh, there's also several cases where they just completely fuck up the facts and end up making legal decisions based on facts that are wrong. So we'll give that to you as well. Out of Foreign Policy Magazine, it's just... Uh, God... So the, the Sessions Department of Justice, Attorney General Beauregard, just weeks before Nazis killed people in Charlottesville, mind you, uh, circulated an internal memo from the FBI warning about the threat from, and I bullshit you not, this is true, black identity extremists. Now, those of us who have been around a while might recall during the Obama administration, there was a threat assessment about the danger of white nationalists. And conservatives poo-pooed that, saying, oh, this is so ridiculous, we need to be focusing on Muslim terrorists. And at the time, I, I understood the argument, I kind of leaned in that direction, but recent history has proven that that was a prescient argument. They were absolutely right. We've got Nazis roaming the fucking countryside now. Uh, so this just feels like a typical Trump sessions, do the absolute reverse of everything that Obama did. Uh, the report says, quote, the FBI assesses it is very likely black identity extremist perceptions of police brutality against African-Americans spurred an increase in premeditated, retaliatory, lethal violence against law enforcement and will very likely serve as justification for such violence. Now, here's a couple of things. Again, time-wise, this came out a couple weeks before Charlottesville, when actual Nazis took over the street and killed actual people. One Nazi happened to have a gun and shot at somebody. Another Nazi took his car and ran over folks. Uh, so it just, mm. but then on top of that, there has not been an increase in premeditated retaliatory lethal violence. We talked about that a few podcasts ago. The actual number of police dying is down. The only parts that have gone up are parts that aren't related to other people. It's things like heart attacks and quote, nine 11 related illness. So this whole memo is bullshit. And the uh, attorney general continues to prove that he's totally fucking incompetent and is going to go down as one of the worst attorney generals that we've ever had. Uh, out of The Intercept, we were talking earlier about General Kelly. Well, it turns out when he was secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, he ordered lower-level staff in the department to portray all immigrants as criminals as a way of justifying raids, uh, and issuing a memo that required them to find, quote, at least three egregious cases 
of immigrants committing crimes that he could then highlight to the media. John Kelly is not to be trusted. All right. Say what you want about his military career. I'm sure he's distinguished. Say what you want about his son's military career. I'm sad that he died in combat. But as a politician, as Secretary of Homeland Security, as Chief of Staff, John Kelly is not to be trusted because he really doesn't give a fuck about things like truth, integrity, or the rule of law when it comes to serving his political objectives. So that is out of The Intercept. We'll give you that story as well. In The Nation, there's a lengthy story on district attorneys' associations and how they are at the forefront of trying to block criminal justice reform. Surprise, surprise. These folks like their power. Now, there are some good ones. We've had Jeff Neiman on here before talking about it. I work with good DAs in Durham all the time. Every county's got some good ones, hopefully. Uh, but when you look at these associations, they're more political than they are dealing with the day-to-day running of a courtroom. So it's no surprise that they're trying to stop reforms from taking place. Uh, the Washington Post has a story out. and turns out that numerous military investigators across multiple branches of the armed services, uh, basically the folks who are in charge of investigating sexual crimes, turn out to be sexual predators. Uh, Here's a quote from the story. An army prosecutor in charge of sexual assault investigations in the Southwest was charged by the military last month with putting a knife to the throat of a lawyer he had been dating and raping her on two occasions. Here's another one. A sergeant at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, who was certified as a sexual assault prevention officer, was convicted at a court martial in May of five counts of raping a preteen girl. Sidebar, that's going to be a theme for this episode, by the way, not just in the military, but with the police. But we'll get there. Uh, Another quote, Army officials confirmed to the Post that eight other soldiers and civilians trained to deter sex offenses or help victims have been investigated over the past year in connection with sexual assault. And the story goes on to uh, reveal the same issues with the Air Force, the Marines, and the Navy. It's pretty sobering stuff. Uh, Also, Out of the Washington Post, a Department of Justice investigation into a chief deputy U.S. marshal found that the marshal traded his parking space in exchange for sex at the office, lied to the Office of Inspector General about the investigation when one of the women he was sleeping with contacted them, reached out to several of the witnesses to ask them to lie to the Office of the Inspector General, and you'll be shocked, shocked to learn that he's not going to be prosecuted. So if you make even a hint of anything even vaguely resembling a lie to federal law enforcement, you're going to prison. That's why we tell people not to speak, because even if they're not deliberately lying, things can be misconstrued or rephrased or taken in a fashion where it seems like you're trying to evade an investigation. You're trying to obstruct justice. But here, once you're on the inside, once you play for the home team, uh, you don't get prosecuted. It's one rule for me, another for thee. That is in the Sessions Department of Justice. Uh, In state-by-state news, in Alabama, out of Homewood, uh, police raided a computer shop owned by Frank Rinelli and seized about 130 computers, most of which were customers' units that he was repairing. On a tip that Rinelli was supposedly purchasing computers that had been stolen from the neighborhood. Well, Rinelli proved that that wasn't the case. He actually found the receipts for the computers that his own business owned, showed that to the government. The uh, criminal charges against him were dropped, but the government is refusing to turn over the inventory, the other computers, uh, because they're arguing that it's, quote, tied up in litigation uh, relating to civil asset forfeiture. 
So this guy is basically having his business utterly destroyed. His customers can't get their stuff because of a false tip. And rather than do the right thing and just give the guy's stuff back, uh, the government would rather just hold on to it because they can. Also, out of Alabama, your future senator, Roy Moore, this this clown that has been on the uh, removed from the bench twice for ignoring the law, uh, is on record now saying that kneeling during the national anthem violates federal law. He said in an interview with Time magazine, quote, it's against the law. You know that it was an act of Congress that every man stand and put their hand over their heart. That's the law. He's wrong, okay? So the law is called the United States Flag Code, and it says that you should stand and put your hand over your heart. Anything in a statute that says should or may is considered permissive. You're not required to do it. It's encouraged. It's something where you distinguish between that and shall or must that is compulsory, And this guy, he knows that. I mean, he's a lawyer. He's been a judge. He's not an idiot. So he's obviously being deliberately deceptive, trying to cater to the base or whatever else. Uh, This guy's bad news. And he's going to be United States senator, joining Greg Gianforte from Montana, wherever the hell that guy is from. Got quite a bunch up there in our nation's capital. Uh, Over in Arizona, federal district court judge Susan Bolton is refusing to vacate the conviction of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So you might recall Joe got a, uh, a pardon from President Trump, and then as part of that, his lawyers asked that the court undo the conviction, pretend that it just never happened. And in a four-page written order, Bolton said no. She essentially argued, uh, citing the same cases that we mentioned in our Law 140 on President's pardoning powers, she says that in order to accept a pardon, you're admitting that you're guilty. And there's no obligation on the part of the courts to erase the factual record to pretend like it never happened. All that the pardon does is erase any potential punishment. Now, here's the interesting part about this. There's been a lot of folks who filed briefs with the court arguing that the pardon should have been held invalid because the conviction related to violating the 14th Amendment and racial discrimination And the argument goes that the 14th Amendment also modified presidential pardon powers. The president can't pardon you for violating uh, something relating to equal protection stuff. Uh, Now, whether or not that has merit, I don't know. The district court judge said it did not. But if Sheriff Joe's lawyers appeal this order that came out this week where she's refusing to make any changes to it, one of the issues that can come up on appeal is the validity of that pardon. What effect does it have? So it could be interesting if the uh, court decides to look into whether or not a president can, in fact, pardon someone for violating the Equal Protection Clause. In Colorado, out of Denver, Corporal Zachary Phillips has been arrested for hiring a prostitute. Uh, Phillips told investigators he did not know that the woman he paid $40 for an in-home massage and then slept in the bed with him that night was a prostitute. had no idea at all. Uh, Officials decided... Again, you're, you're going to be shocked to find this. Uh, officials decided that Phillips deserved a second chance because of his exemplary career. So he's going to be suspended temporarily, gets a two-week vacation, uh, and then will be back at work, go ahead and doing his thing. So it'll be interesting to see if he ever prosecutes anyone for prostitution because I can only imagine how that testimony would go on cross-examination. Uh, out of the District of Columbia, 
the Department of Justice has dropped a request for identity information on roughly 6,000 people uh, who liked an anti-Trump Facebook page. So the Department of Justice served Facebook with warrants for the information back in February. Uh, This was part of the Disrupt J20 stuff where people were potentially talking about disrupting the presidential inauguration. Well, one of those pages, they wanted information on every single person that had ever liked the page. Uh, so Facebook actually decided to fight back, and the Department of Justice this past week dropped their request. Uh, down in Florida, so we've got six cases out of six cases, six stories. I shouldn't call them cases, but six stories out of Florida this week. Uh, in Broward County, the third rule of Fisk is at work. Again, third rule of Fisk, there are no new stories, only new names and new jurisdictions. Uh, Broward County Deputy Sheriff Leon Campbell has been indicted for repeatedly raping a 15-year-old girl. Uh, They, quote, dated, unquote, for two years, which means that this started when she was 13. Ugh. Uh, so I'll give you that story, but this guy, it's, it's creepy. It's fucking creepy. There's something wrong with you. If you are in your 30s, 40s, or older, really, if you're even in your 20s, but if you're that age and you're fucking around with someone who's barely a teenager... It's, you need you need a fucking mental health check or something. That's disgusting. And it's even worse when you're a fucking police officer. So that's out of Broward County. In Gainesville, three Richard Spencer groupies have been charged with attempted murder for shooting at protesters at the University of Florida. Uh, so Spencer's the, the Nazi that everyone talks about. He went down to UF to speak. And from the story, he says, quote, Just before 5.30 p.m., as protesters outside Spencer's speech at UF's Phillips Center were wrapping up, Gainesville police said the trio who've been charged uh, started heckling some anti-Spencer protesters with Hitler chants, Nazi salutes, and threats. At one point, cops said, convicted felon Tyler Tenbrink pulled out a gun, and the brothers who were with him encouraged him to use it. Now, it's also interesting, two of these three people were also seen at the Charlottesville protest as well, Tenbrink and one of the two brothers that's been arrested. So we'll see how that turns out. But also on a related note, this is a good example of actionable incitement. So when we've talked in prior podcasts about the protections of the First Amendment, we talked about the Brandenburg versus Ohio standard, where in order to criminalize someone's speech, it has to be intended to produce and likely to produce imminent lawless action. This meets those prongs. The brothers encouraged Tim Brink to use the gun. They were intending for him to do so. It was reasonably likely to do so because he's a convicted felon, whack job Nazi, and the fact that he shot indicates that it was likely to happen. And it was imminent. It happened right as they said the words. So this is a good example of actionable incitement, and I hope all three of these clowns go away for a long time. Uh, In the town of, and I'm going to totally fuck up the pronunciation of this, Hialeah or Halea, something like that. Uh, essentially, police there have filed a complaint against their own department, claiming that they're being pressured to write traffic tickets as part of a quota, that if they don't ticket at least three drivers per officer per day, uh, they get disciplined. Now, of course, everyone's going to deny that police have quotas. The police department does that in the story as well. Most of us know better, but that's an interesting story out of the southern part of Florida. In Longwood, 34-year-old Jamie Nelson has been indicted for first-degree murder uh, because she introduced her friend Tracy Scornica to her heroin dealer. This is the first case that anyone's been able to find where a drug addict is being prosecuted for the death of another drug addict for the simple act of introducing that drug addict to a drug dealer. It's an interesting theory. 
uh, think this is the war on drugs running amok still, but we'll see how this all turns out. In Miami-Dade, the Miami Herald has an expose on the state's juvenile justice system, uh, including a story about a 17-year-old boy who died from a group beating that was instigated by one of the prison guards. It's called honey bunning or honey bun hits. What they'll do is the guards will offer honey buns to the inmates if they go rough someone up just because they can. The 17-year-old boy apparently mouthed off to a guard, so the guard said, here, have some honey buns, and a bunch of other inmates kicked the shit out of him until he died. Uh, so that's out of Miami. In Orlando, the city has paid 37 000, Speaking of honey buns, I probably should have done that as a tie-in. Uh, the city's paid $37,500 to settle a lawsuit by Daniel Rushing, who was arrested for possession of meth. Turns out that the field test that showed that he had meth actually was wrong, and there were actually flakes from a Krispy Kreme donut. Not exactly a honey bun, but still a glazed pastry. Uh, field tests are shit, by the way. If you happen to live in a city that uses field drug tests, their error rates are astronomically high. And you look at, they're going to claim otherwise, but look at the science behind it and the statistics. Field tests suck ass. They should not be used by any police department anywhere. Um, but just bear that in mind. Orlando taxpayers, congratulations. You're shelling out $38,000 to this guy. Over in Georgia, in Atlanta, the Georgia Supreme Court has given the go-ahead for the criminal prosecution of DeKalb police officer Robert Olson. Uh, Olson, for those of you that have been on Twitter for a while, will remember he's the guy who shot and killed Anthony Hill back in 2015. Uh, he was a black guy. He was naked and unarmed and mentally ill, but he was a veteran. Someone called for a welfare check, and Olson basically killed him, saying he feared for his life. Didn't make any damn sense at all whatsoever. So that prosecution will go forward. Also out of Atlanta, State Representative Betty Price, Republican, the wife of the Trump Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price, uh, asked the government if they could go ahead and quarantine people who have HIV. She's on record talking with some staff member uh, from somebody as part of a legislative committee hearing and actually asks that because they're spending money on prevention, trying to prevent the spread of HIV, could they just go ahead and quarantine all of the HIV-infected people? Fucking disgusting. Uh, out of Illinois, in Chicago, federal district court judge Edmund Chang has ruled that police officers who forced four residents of a home to each put their fingers on the Touch ID sensor of an iPhone in order to unlock it did not violate the Constitution. From Chang's order, he says, quote, compelling physical access to information via the fingerprint seizure is no different from requiring someone to surrender a key to a safe whose contents otherwise would not be accessible to the government. Y'all might remember we've talked about this before. There's a Fiskamal episode called Phones in the Fifth. Check that out if you haven't yet, where we talk about whether or not providing passcodes or using your fingerprints uh, violates the Fourth or Fifth Amendments. Moral of the story, your fingerprints are considered identifying information. They're fair game. And this uh, order here just kind of confirms that. In Indiana, in Anderson, there was a, uh, a car accident at Anderson Speedway, and basically one driver ran into another. So then the driver that got hit was pissed off 
and crashed into the car again deliberately, got out of the car, went over to the driver's side window, and just started punching the other driver. The other driver punched back, ended up being a scuffle. Not terribly unusual if you happen to see races on a semi-regular basis. A lot of folks only watch them for the crashes. Uh, Well, the police officers who were on hand went up and just tased the guy immediately. And of course, this is all on video because the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. So that video went viral because the officer comes up and just tases the guy instantly as he collapsed to the ground. Uh, Also in Indiana, out of Indianapolis, the Marion County Jail is apparently in the practice of not giving meds to people who have mental illnesses. There's a story on Keith Crumley, who's one particular inmate. He was nearly catatonic by the time that he was released. Uh, He was jailed for a battery charge, held for three days, didn't get any of his meds during that time, and after he was released, had to be immediately rushed to the hospital. So we'll give you that story. In Kentucky, over in Covington, viral video was released of a school resource officer. That's police, by the way. Uh, School resource officer Kevin Sumner placing handcuffs on an eight-year-old boy, uh, cuffing him above his elbows. So if you if you can think about trying to put your hands behind your back, uh, put your arms behind your back enough that you're, you can be cuffed above your elbows, it's incredibly painful. It's done deliberately as a pain position not to actually restrain somebody. It's not taught as particular training in this department, but he did it anyway. Well, a federal judge ruled that practice was unconstitutional. So Kenton County taxpayers will be ponying up a shitload of money to settle this particular case, but the video from it has been released as well. Down in Louisiana, we got three different stories out of New Orleans. Uh, First, two of them relate to bail. So the first one is the city's experimenting with ending their cash bail system because they jail so many people that costs a lot of money to keep those jails running. So they've been trying to release people without requiring bail. Of the 201 people who were released as part of this experiment, only nine missed court. So that's a 4.5% missed rate, which is actually pretty good. You know, if you come hang out in court here in North Carolina, you'll be astonished at the number of people that never show up to court. Uh, Only having nine miss is actually pretty impressive. Uh, In The Nation, there's also a report on the magistrates and how they determine the bail for these folks. And they talk about Magistrate Judge Harry Cantrell, who no matter what the offense is, no matter how minor, your minimum bail is going to be $2,500, no exceptions. Uh, Doesn't matter whether you're poor, doesn't matter whether you can afford to pay it, doesn't matter if the reason you're in court is because of a traffic ticket. If you're being jailed, your minimum bond is $2,500. It's abusive and it's ridiculous. So we'll give you that story. Uh, Also, the district attorney in New Orleans had been using fake subpoenas trying to coerce people into testifying. And then he would jail people who ignored the subpoenas, even though the subpoenas were fake. Uh, So he has now been sued by the ACLU. Several of the victims who were jailed because of him are filing suit against him. And, you know, I can never say how these lawsuits are going to end. I'm going to suspect this one is going to end with a pretty hefty cash payment by Louisiana taxpayers because you've got a government official faking documents and then jailing victims. I mean, it's just so stupid. So that's Louisiana, which continues to be a floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck when it comes to the criminal justice system. Uh, In Maryland, there's a story in the Washington Post on Army veteran O. Kwan, who, uh, after retiring from the Army, bought a gas station along the National Pike. The IRS seized almost $60,000 as part of an investigation into what is called structuring. So structuring is this federal crime where any cash deposit 
that's over $10,000 requires a lot of paperwork because we're trying to ferret out terrorists and mobsters and everything else. So if you make multiple deposits just a hair less than $10,000, the assumption is you're deliberately structuring your deposits that way to avoid scrutiny, and that becomes a crime. Well, the reason why this guy was making deposits under 10000 was because he didn't know about the law. The bank teller told him that he needed to go ahead and make deposits less than 10000 so she doesn't have to do all of this paperwork. And the IRS changed their policy so that other small businesses wouldn't be caught up in the same type of situation that Kwan's was. Well, despite all of that, they're refusing to give him back the money. They're saying the $60,000 is theirs. It is part of civil asset forfeiture because he pled guilty to the structuring because he did it. It just happened that he did it because the bank teller told him to. So that is out of Maryland. In Massachusetts, the Boston Globe has an expose called The Desperate and the Dead on the failed mental health care system in that state. Uh, the lead to the page says, quote, One by one, nearly all the state psychiatric hospitals were boarded up or bulldozed, but Massachusetts leaders broke their promise to replace them with something better or much of anything at all. The failed mental health care system has led to a public safety crisis, including scores of murders by disturbed people, police shootings, and embattled institutions from courts to hospitals confronting a tidal wave of mentally ill people. It's a lengthy expose in multiple parts. It's very sobering to read. It's bad in Massachusetts, but I guarantee it's bad everywhere else, so you should definitely give it a look. Uh, also, the state director for the Office of Alcohol Testing has been fired because it turned out they have been repeatedly withholding exculpatory evidence from defense attorneys in thousands of DUI cases since 2011. Now, exculpatory evidence is evidence that tends to prove you didn't commit the crime. So basically, they had evidence that these people who were being charged with DUIs weren't actually drunk, and they just decided not to turn that over to defense attorneys because they can. They decided that was their policy. So thousands of convictions now are going to be in jeopardy, probably vacated. This particular director has been fired. And this is all part of the backdrop of the state crime lab where we've talked before about how fucked up they are. So Massachusetts is a mess. If you, uh, if you happen to get charged with anything up there, good luck. So in Methwin, I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't actually know. Uh, while we're talking about DUIs, the Methwin Police Department has been using Spanish language forms that falsely claim the legal drinking limit is 0.1 and that a jury would be informed if they refused to take a breathalyzer test, trying to coerce people to breathe into this breathalyzer. Well, they were actually told three years ago that the forms were inaccurate and you can't use them because the federal drinking limit is 0 0.08. Uh, and of course, the jury is not allowed to hear if you refuse. Well, they kept using them anyway, so they're now being sued, and Massachusetts taxpayers will be forking over a lot of money eventually. Down in Mississippi, in Batesville, there's a murder trial pending of Quentin Tellis, who's a black guy. Uh, Judge Gerald Chatham, who's a white guy, befriended a reporter who's covering the case, and randomly one day dug up a cotton plant and gave it to her as a gift. Well, when news reporter Melissa Jones reported on it, she posted an image online of the, uh, the plant with a comment saying, quote, the judge dug up a cotton plant and brought it to some girl in the media. Uh, she was actually expelled from the courthouse. The sheriff kicked her out, told her she was not allowed to come back. And then when her editor called the sheriff to verify that's what he did, he was unapologetic about it. He said, yeah, I kicked her out, and that's fine. 
Um, even though it's a total violation of the First Amendment, you can't remove someone from the courthouse because they posted that the judge is giving a gift to a reporter. Anyhow, over in Jackson, an unnamed school teacher was suspended for two days for proposing that a black student should be lynched as a form of discipline. There's not a whole lot of details on the dispute in this news story. Apparently, a black and white student were both in an argument, and the teacher told the white student that she should let the black student hit him so that we can hang him. Uh, city attorney responded to the lawsuit about it, uh, saying that the teacher was, quote, trying to discipline an unruly child, and maybe she didn't use the best choice of words, but there was no racial intent or racial overtone. Well, whether or not there's racial intent is remains to be seen. I can't read this person's mind, but whether or not there's a racial overtone, there absolutely fucking is. Mississippi had the highest number of lynchings during the Jim Crow era. From 1882 to 1968, they had 581 lynchings. Georgia was second with 531. Texas was third with 493. Mississippi, smaller than both of those states, had more. So anytime you talk about lynching somebody, there's going to be a racial overtone there in Mississippi, for sure. Uh, So that is in Jackson and Lafayette County. Alex McDaniel is editor-in-chief of the Oxford Eagle and Oxford Magazine. Uh, She has a three-year-old son and tweets excerpts of their conversations on Twitter. You can follow her at Alex McDaniel. Well, one of these conversations, talking about her kid using the toilet, uh, she appended this line that says, quote, three-year-old for sale, $12 or best offer. It's obviously a joke because the kid was being obnoxious. Well, it turns out that actually prompted a sex trafficking investigation because someone saw it online, reported it to police, and both police and Child Protective Services showed up thinking that she's actually trying to sell her kid for $12. Jesus Christ. You know, we've got so many police fucking up so many things in so many places, and we're wasting taxpayer time, resources, and money to investigate this type of shit. I mean, use your fucking brains. Good Lord. So that is all in Mississippi. In Missouri, in St. Louis, uh, police are currently testifying as part of a federal hearing relating to the arrests that we mentioned last month. The police testified that they were triggered by protesters who wore goggles and masks. That was sufficient for them to use chemical weapons. Uh, Attorney uh, Tony Rothert, who's the legal director for the ACLU, was questioning one of the police witnesses Uh, saying, this is a quote, surely no one could provoke you to use chemicals by wearing something, could they? And the officer said, yes, absolutely. The fact that they had goggles on meant we needed to break out the pepper balls. So also interesting tidbit. You might recall they uh, arrested an undercover officer as part of that. The guy ended up with a bloody lip in the process. Well, they they basically claimed this undercover officer was resisting arrest. Uh, Good luck with that. It's ridiculous. Over in Nevada, in Las Vegas, uh, Clark County District Court Judge Susan Johnson, quote, told at least two felons during sentencing proceedings in July that if they follow through on all the terms of their probation, they may have their voting rights restored in time to vote for President Donald Trump in 2020. That way, your civil rights would be restored, and you would have plenty of time to vote for Mr. Trump on the next election, okay? Johnson said, according to court transcripts. That's disturbing as hell. So I'm all for having uh, felons have their rights restored. The whole notion of paying your debt to society is that when you get out, your actually debt has been paid. But it's disturbing to me that you've got a judge trying to convince people to vote for a particular political candidate, no matter who it is. 
Judges wear black robes. They don't wear red robes or blue robes. So that's that's ridiculous. But that's in Nevada. In New Jersey, in Orange, police officer Hanifa Davis has been suspended after he beat the shit out of two teenage girls outside of a high school. Uh, the girls had gotten pizza and were walking back to band practice. There ended up some kind of physical altercation between them and the officer. We don't really know why. Well, it's on video where he throws one girl into the pizzeria window, grabs another by the hair, and puts her onto the ground. Uh, gets the other girl onto the ground. At some point, the principal of the high school tries to step in and figure out what's going on. He gets put into a headlock. It, it's a complete mess. Uh, well, Davis has been given vacation. He's on vacation while the investigation takes place, but that is out of Orange, New Jersey. Uh, in New York, we have got a lot of stories from New York. I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in New York City just from this past week. Uh, so first, federal judge Jack Weinstein, or Weinstein, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, he's from the Eastern District of New York. He's issued a ruling wanting to review the, pres- the prevalence of police dishonesty and considering submitting the question of police dishonesty to a jury. Uh, the case involves 59-year-old Hector Cordero, who used to be a police officer in the Dominican Republic. He now owns a bodega in New York. He was arrested by NYPD as a suspected drug dealer. Uh, they found no drugs on him, found no evidence that he was the guy, and it turns out he was actually inside the store that he owns at the time that police claim he was selling drugs to someone outside. Uh, so Cordero sued the police. And as part of this, he accused the officers who arrested him, saying that they did it because they wanted to make overtime pay because the arrest happened near the end of their shift. So in the judge's decision, and this is from the story, says, quote, Judge Weinstein noted that one of the officers involved in arresting Mr. Cordero had previously been suspended from the force for 60 days and required to pay $1,200 in restitution for claiming overtime pay for hours he did not work. And Judge Weinstein noted that officers were paid at least 22 hours of overtime for the arrests of Mr. Cordero and the other man outside the bodega. So in his ruling, Judge Weinstein said that after holding a trial on Mr. Cordero's case early next year, uh, he would, if Mr. Cordero proved his case, hold a second proceeding to examine the prevalence of police lying and whether false arrests were being carried out to generate overtime. So we'll see how that turns out. That's exciting. And and no one's really aware of a recent case where a judge has done that. Uh, We'll see what happens with it. But that would be interesting if that comes to pass. So uh, last week, you might recall, we mentioned NYPD officers Eddie Martins and Richard Hall, who uh, basically arrested a girl who was with her friends. She was found in the park with drugs. They arrested her, raped her, left her on the side of the roadway, and then claimed after the fact that the sex was consensual. Uh, By the way, you can't have consensual sex with someone who's under arrest. That's actually not consent, you know, because you've got that power imbalance there. Um, Well, they're now using her social media profile to try and smear her as a way of avoiding indictment. So this is a story out of the New York Post. It says, quote, in a letter to the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, lawyers for disgraced cops Eddie Martins and Richard Hall targeted the young woman's raunchy social media posts since the alleged September 15th attack and her claim against the city. Examples cited by lawyers John Arlia and Mark Bettero include a provocative selfie the 18-year-old woman posted on Instagram and a tweet in which she bragged about being followed by the paparazzi, 
following an October 13th meeting with prosecutors. So just know, if you ever happen to be raped by police in New York, make sure that you lock down your social media profiles because they will do everything they can to try and avoid accountability for their actions. Uh, Speaking of which, 43-year-old New York police officer Adam Fritzen has been arrested for exposing himself to a 7-year-old and a 12-year-old as the kids were walking to church. He's in a van. He ends up getting out, flashing his uh, schlong to them, and then asks them for directions to the nearest McDonald's before walking off. But turns out that guy's a cop. Uh, Also in New York City, a confidential memo was provided to the media showing that the NYPD's sex crimes unit, those are the folks on Law & Order SVU, not actual folks, but that's who they're, that's the unit that, that show represents, uh, basically closed rape cases too quickly, threatened victims. Uh, in one part, this is from the story, says, quote, the detectives were yelling at the victims and saying inappropriate things, such as the district attorney is going to make you look like a slut on trial. Veteran prosecutor Friel said in 2009, according to the memo, they also threatened the victims that they're going to lock them up. So that is the sex crimes unit. Uh, also, a NYPD officer who also does bodybuilding on the side says his female boss grabbed his crotch because he was buff. Uh, basically, the woman was repeatedly sexually harassing him. And the here's the interesting part. The NYPD's Equal Employment Opportunity Office, who did the investigation, uh, found that he was sexually harassed. That was substantiated. But his claim that he was discriminated against because of his gender was unsubstantiated. So to find that that's not gender discrimination, to me, I don't know employment law that well, but that would seem to me that means that she was hitting on the women too. I don't know. So that is going on in the NYPD. And in a truly special display of incompetence, like New York levels of incompetence, uh, the NYPD admitted in court that they aren't able to access their database on seized forfeiture property. They can't run a database query. Uh, and they don't have a backup of the data because the system is so antiquated, they can't access it dynamically and they can't back it up to anything. Even though they paid a contractor $25 million, $25 million taxpayer dollars to create a database that worked, that actually tracked this type of stuff, it still has not been done yet. Uh, So that is all of the NYPD stuff. There's also a broader column by public defender Anisha Gupta. She's writing in the NY Daily News about one of her clients who died on Rikers Island. The guy's name was Selman Feratovich, and he was arrested because someone tried to get into a vending machine and steal the quarters. And no one actually could prove it was him. You know, he's got kind of a the police saw security video they thought looked like him. Uh, but he didn't have any of the quarters on him or anything like that, didn't find his fingerprints on the vending machine or anything else. But he was charged with felony breaking and entering, and because of the felony, got a $50,000 bail that he couldn't pay, and the judge wouldn't reduce it because it's a felony, so that's a potential problem. Well, all that time ended up being spent there. He ended up dying in Rikers Island, and his drug addiction started because of a car accident in 2011. Someone hit him, he got prescribed some medications, and got hooked. So that's a, uh, we'll give you that link, but it's a sobering story as well. There's also a new study out by the Community Service Society in New York where they're mapping arrests for fare evasion for buses, subways, whatever else. In Brooklyn, they map the arrests overlaid onto the neighborhoods. 
And what you find is that the people who are arrested for fare evasion, unsurprisingly, come from poor neighborhoods who can't afford the fares. So the study's title is The Crime of Being $2.75 Short. And it goes into how criminalizing poverty has become such a tremendous problem because these poor folks get criminal charges. They can't find jobs to become unpoor. And then on top of it, you're devoting so much time and money for prosecuting $2.75. You know, you spend far more than that with police, DAs, and everything else. It's a huge money pit for the city. So that is all the New York cases. Every single one of those is out of New York City. Uh, Here in my home state of North Carolina, the News and Observer has an expose on jail deaths. So they had an expose a couple weeks back on prisons and the abuse in our prison system. So this one was on the jails. And they talk about uh, five separate deaths and five separate jails and and basically the discussion about how mental health care is inadequate. And the thing to keep in mind is jails where you go when you haven't been convicted yet. So most of the people that are sitting in jail on any given night have not been convicted of a crime. They've been charged, they're waiting on their day in court, but they're still innocent until proven guilty. So dying in prison is bad, but dying in jail is worse because you've not actually been convicted. So we'll give you that link. Uh, Also, we made the New York Times. Uh, Our state legislature is making even more changes to our judicial system. They first... They, they reduced the number of judges on the Court of Appeals because we have a mandatory retirement age and several of the Court of Appeals judges who are Republicans would be stepping down. We have a Democrat governor who would theoretically appoint Democrats. So to get around that, the General Assembly just eliminated those judgeships, which was foolish, painfully foolish, because the Court of Appeals handles so many cases and they take forever to get done because we don't have enough judges. If anything, they need to be expanding the Court of Appeals. Well, they also made district and superior court judges uh, partisan, so they now have Republicans or Democrats next to their names. That, in turn, became a problem because you have cities like Durham where one of our very best judges, we have six district court judges here, and the guy that's the chief district court judge is also the only one of the six who has any civil practice experience. Well, he happens to be a Republican. Now, he kept getting elected when the judicial races were nonpartisan, but Durham is a heavily Democratic city. There is no chance he's going to get reelected in 2018 because of this law. Well, because of the fallout from that, rather than make the races nonpartisan again, they're now trying to tinker with the contours of judicial districts, carving them up like they would a legislative district, uh, and it's becoming a a separate mess on its own. So we'll give you that story. It's a sad state of affairs here when it comes to the judiciary. Um, You know, I, I appreciate and respect a lot of what the legislature has done on so many issues, but when it comes to justice reform and the court system, they've, they've just been, it's a mixed bag. I'll put it that way. So over in Catawba County, Jason Reed, who is a candidate for sheriff, he's running to replace his dad, who is the current sheriff, uh, received a letter from county prosecutors indicating that he basically he's a liar and he can't be used as a witness anymore. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the district attorney's office will no longer be able to use Captain Jason C. Reed as a witness for the state of North Carolina in any criminal case within the 25th Judicial District. The letter outlines three reasons why Reed's credibility could be called into question by defense attorneys. 
There's a case in Lincoln County in which Reed was the supervisor that resulted in a dismissal due to credibility issues with the officer involved. A total of 58 other cases were dismissed as a result. An incident in 2005 in which Reed admitted to using counterfeit currency and misrepresenting which law enforcement agency he worked for. And then three, the fact that the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of North Carolina will not prosecute cases in which Reed has taken part. So that's interesting. This guy is running for sheriff and will not be able to actually testify in anything. And then this last story we've got in North Carolina is, is it's not criminal justice related, but it's totally ridiculous. So out of Hickory, a five-year-old boy, Jake Leatherman, died of juvenile leukemia back last November. A Baptist minister, a guy named J.C. Schoff, repossessed the boy's tombstone because his parents hadn't finished paying the bill. This past week, they show up to go visit his grave, and there's nothing there but a hole in the ground. The guy took the tombstone. And of course, they you know, were outraged and reported this to the media. The media calls him, and the guy says, quote, I hated to do it. I'm not heartless, and I've had a child die, so I know how it feels. But what was I to do? Dude, here's what you do. You, you got a couple options. One, you take it as a tax write-off because every single small business owner knows that you can write off bad debts. It's even included in TurboTax when you do your taxes, if you do them on your own. But then you also have other ways to do it. You know what you could have done? You could have arranged a fundraiser online, partnered with the family, and said, look, I've got to get paid for this tombstone, but the family can't afford it. Help donate to a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter or whatever the fuck else and get your money that way. What kind of man of God takes a tombstone for a dead kid? Jesus. You know, when someone says, what would Jesus do? I don't think he was in the tombstone repossessing business. Good Lord. So that is it for North Carolina. Over in Ohio, in Euclid, we do have some good news. Uh, Euclid Police Department Officer Michael Amiot has been fired. So we talked about that guy two straight weeks. He's the one who pulled over Richard Hubbard III and promptly beat the shit out of him. And then the girlfriend who was recording it was arrested. So it turns out Amiot was a liar. When the dash cam came out, he had previously said that Hubbard was res uh, resisting arrest. And then the dash cam showed that Hubbard didn't even have the chance. Like Amiot just started wailing on him the minute he got out of the car. Uh, well, he's now been fired from the Euclid Police Department. Realistically, he's going to get hired somewhere else, but at least there's some attempt at accountability. So that's in Ohio. Over in Oklahoma, in Stewart, uh, the Stewart School District has adopted a new policy that will require students to stand for the national anthem and prohibits, quote, gestures of demonstration or protest. Uh, guess what, guys? Y'all are going to be paying a lot of money when you get sued and that gets held unconstitutional. Because as we've talked about before, the case of West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, the government cannot compel you to participate in patriotic displays if you don't want to. So have fun defending that lawsuit. Over in Oregon and Portland, we got two stories. Uh, ICE agents, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, in plain clothes, entered a Portland home without permission and without a warrant to arrest a guy. And it's all caught on video. The guy was later released. Nothing actually happened of it. Uh, but they're now basically walking into homes in Oregon to arrest people because they can, apparently. Uh, also, police racked up $1.9 million in overtime for staffing protests. Even the small ones where they don't actually need anybody, they staff them anyway and get paid overtime. And it's all just in the past year. They racked up almost $2 million in overtime in the past year. 
uh, for this protest security. Over in Pennsylvania, in DuPont, former DuPont Police Department officer David Turcos uh, was sentenced. I'm not going to tell you how long. I'm going to save that for the end. But he was sentenced for sexually abusing two boys. One was four years old. One was six years old. Uh, He pled to two counts of corruption of a minor. You will undoubtedly be shocked to learn that Turcos had been arrested before. Uh, He was arrested in 2008 while he was a police officer for assaulting his wife and stepson both. The stepson ended up with a broken arm. He pleaded guilty to two counts of simple assault and harassment and was sentenced to six months on probation. He was arrested again in 2009 for masturbating in front of two children. Uh, In that case, he was sentenced to six months to a year in county prison for corruption of minors. Still a police officer, you got this case here where he ended up molesting these two boys. And for this crime, he's going to get, drumroll, only nine months. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, sexually abusing two kids, uh, and this is your third strike, is only nine months in jail if you happen to be a police officer in Pennsylvania. Uh, added creepy factor for this particular case, Joseph Turcos, the officer's dad, also pled guilty to molesting one of those same boys. So apparently engaging in molestation is a family affair. You will be shocked to learn that Joseph Turcos was also a police officer. Uh, down in South Carolina, in Kingstree, police pulled over unarmed 86-year-old black man Albert Chatfield and then tased him, quote, for his own safety. Uh, in the process, Chatfield fell to the ground, broke his nose, ended up with a brain lesion, so bleeding on his brain, uh, was put into a medically induced coma, and when he woke up, he couldn't speak and could only mumble and cry. Uh, folks, who the fuck can't restrain an unarmed 86-year-old man? I don't know that many 86-year-olds, but everyone that I've met is someone that I could take down, and I'm not even in the best of physical shape. If you're a police officer and you can't restrain an 86-year-old, you feel compelled to tase him for his own safety, quote-unquote. What the fuck is wrong with you? You need to be in a new fucking profession. So that's in South Carolina. Over in Tennessee, in Sevierville, uh, Sevier County Sheriff's Deputy Justin Johnson basically had a fucking meltdown. So from the story, it says, quote, Justin Johnson opened fire without warning in a mobile home park, suffered an apparent panic attack four minutes later, and was forcibly disarmed by a paramedic. Of course, this is from body camera footage, because first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they're being recorded. Uh, Brian Mullinax and Tina Cody spent 42 days in jail for the incident, Uh, Because they were charged basically with inducing this guy's panic attack, even though they didn't cause it. Uh, They couldn't afford bonds, so they spent a month and a half in jail. Uh, And Johnson, conveniently, did not mention the panic attack in his report on the incident. And you will be surprised, shocked even, to learn that he remains on active duty. So we'll give you that story as well. And then finally, in Virginia, not a criminal justice story, but out of Short Pump, which is part of the, uh, the far west end of Richmond. Uh, so I'm from Virginia Beach. We've got thoughts about Richmond and D.C. and everything else. They're not good ones. Uh, but essentially, uh, Short Pump is a very rich, very yuppie suburb of Richmond. Uh, it's mostly white, and white students at Short Pump Middle School on their football team were on video on Snapchat holding down two black teammates 
uh, as the white students pretended to fuck them, basically, while shouting racial slurs in the process. They recorded it, uploaded it to Snapchat, of course, that made the rounds. Parents were understandably outraged, but that's apparently the type of shit we do nowadays because, to quote President George W. Bush, who gave a stellar speech this past week, uh, bigotry seems to be emboldened. I wonder why. Folks, that's going to do it for the state-by-state justice news. Let's go ahead and jump into our Law 140 segment on the rights of students when they are being searched for drugs and other related stuff. So the background story for this particular Law 140 is based out of Worth County, Georgia. You might remember we talked about Sheriff Jeff Hobby down there who conducted a search of all students at Worth County High School. Uh, Basically, the sheriff's department there had a tip that one or two students had been dealing drugs. They created a short list. And then when they got there, they just said, oh, fuck it. Let's search everybody. And the search turned up absolutely nothing. They found no drugs at all whatsoever. And then a few weeks ago, Hobby was actually indicted for violating his oath of office as well as uh, sexual abuse because it came out that the deputies were using this search as an opportunity to molest some kids. They were grabbing women in their vaginas and grabbing guys in their crotches and all doing that without turning up anything. Well, as part of that story... Someone asked online whether or not students actually have any rights when it comes to being in a public school, whether or not they can be searched indiscriminately. And that is how this came out. So the Supreme Court has considered four cases that I was able to find that kind of spell out the contours of what rights students have when it comes to searches. Now, before we get into this, you got to remember the second rule of Fisk, you have to start at the source, which is the text of the Fourth Amendment itself. And the Fourth Amendment says, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, we've talked a bit about that in other cases, but in the context of dealing with students, you're dealing with a separate environment. You know, the fact that school environment is more restricted because it's for learning, not for, you know, anything else. Um, So out of these four cases, it helps if you think of them with, you kind of use like a a two by two matrix, if you will. So the question first is whether or not the basis for the search is because of individualized suspicion or if they're searching a group of people. And then the other question is whether or not this information is being shared with law enforcement. If it's something there, someone's going to be prosecuted versus whether or not the school is going to keep it in house. So the first case out of the quartet came in 1985. It's the case of New Jersey versus TLO is the initials of the uh, person here. And just as an interesting trivia note, this is the only one of the four cases where the Fourth Amendment was raised as a defense to a criminal prosecution. The other three cases were civil suits under 42 United States Code Section 1983, alleging that government agents had violated their constitutional rights. But in this case, in TLO, two girls were caught smoking in a bathroom. It was TLO and one of her friends. 
and they were taken to the principal's office. The friend admitted to smoking. TLO denied it. And because of that denial, the principal demanded that she open her purse. And in the purse, they found cigarettes, weed, a, a bunch of $1 bills, index cards that uh, were captioned, people who owe me money, essentially. So basically this woman was a little weed dealer at school. And she was prosecuted for possession of marijuana. And she moved to suppress the evidence, claiming that the search of her purse was unconstitutional, and therefore everything that she found was fruit of the poisonous tree, as it were. Well, it eventually made its way to the Supreme Court, and in a 6-3 to decision, the court decided that everything was fine. What they ruled was that, and I'm quoting here, that administrators could, quote, conduct reasonable warrantless searches of students under their authority, notwithstanding the probable cause standard that would normally apply to searches under the Fourth Amendment. The court held that the search of Tilo's purse was reasonable under the particular circumstances in this case. And what they did was that they came up with essentially this two-pronged test. The first prong was whether or not the search was justified at the time it began, justified at its inception. And then the second prong was whether or not the search was reasonable in its scope. So what does justified mean? What the court said was that it was reasonable that the search would produce evidence of violation of law or of a school rule. And then for reasonableness, what they said was, quote, the legality of a search of a student should depend simply on the reasonableness under all the circumstances of the search, whether the measures adopted were reasonably related to the objectives of the search and not excessively intrusive in light of the age and sex of the student and the nature of the infraction. So that became the framework for the circuit courts and district courts to apply as they're considering these cases. So the next case that deals with it deals with a group uh, search in 1995. It's Vernonia School District 47J versus Acton. And this was an Oregon school uh, district that had been seeing a rise in drug use at the school. So they decided to have an intervention. And part of that was that they were going to randomly drug test all student athletes. And the idea was that athletes were seen as leaders in the drug culture. They were also seen as role models for the school. So the hope was that if they could get athletes to stop using, that would have a trickle-down effect towards the student body. And as part of that, they developed this policy where every athlete was tested at the beginning of the season, and then 10% were randomly picked in a lottery each week to do a test throughout the season. And they put it in very comprehensive screening so that there was a minimal amount of intrusion. There was one of those little uh, walls where a nurse could get the sample without having to see that you're peeing and whatnot. Uh, the results stayed with the school. They weren't shared with law enforcement. And someone ended up filing suit, arguing that that type of regime, even with the uh, privacy protections, still violated the Fourth Amendment. And in this case, the court said no. It was a six to three decision, and it was authored by uh, Judge Scalia, or Justice Scalia, excuse me. And essentially, he articulated what is basically a balancing test and said that the school had to balance, quote, the intrusion on the individual's Fourth Amendment interests against the promotion of legitimate governmental interests, in this case, running the school and preventing drug use in school grounds. And as part of that, the court continued that they must, quote, weigh the nature of the privacy interest and the character of the intrusion against the nature of the government concern at issue. 
and the efficacy of the particular means for meeting that concern. So in this case, the drug testing regime for a group, even without suspicion for wrongdoing, was fine, given that particular balancing test. So the court then revisited that exact same issue less than a decade later. So in 2002 was the next case. It was Board of Education of Independent School District Number 92 versus Earls. And the facts are basically the same as the Vernonia case. The legal facts are, are identical, except in the, um, the Earls case, it applied to all extracurricular participants, not just student-athletes. And there was no particular drug problem. It was adopted as a preventative, a prophylactic measure. So they filed suit saying, well, surely this particular setup is beyond what the Vernonia case had and is unconstitutional. And the court, again, said no, it wasn't. So there's a narrower decision. In this case, it was a five to four decision. But the court said that if you look at the balancing test from Vernonia and you apply it here, uh, drug testing all extracurricular participants was fine. And there's actually a concurrence by Justice Breyer, who was in that five-justice majority. And he says, quote, the testing program avoids subjecting the entire school to testing, and it preserves an option for the conscientious objector. He can refuse testing while paying a price, non-participation, that is serious but less severe than expulsion from the school. So we're going to come back to that concurrence in a minute. And then finally, the last of the four cases was in 2009, about eight years ago, in Safford Unified School District Number 1 versus Redding. So in this case, there's a 13-year-old student. She's in eighth grade. Her name is Savannah Redding. And one of the other students told a teacher that Redding was basically doling out ibuprofen pills. So the, uh, the teacher searched her backpack they didn't find anything. Then they sent her to the nurse to have the nurse pat her down, didn't find anything, had her disrobe, didn't find anything, and then had her pull back her uh, underwear and bra so they could check her uh, lady parts and didn't find anything there either. So she filed suit, arguing that her rights were violated and that the school should be held liable because they've cl violated clearly established constitutional rights. And in this case, the court ruled in an eight-to-one decision that, yes, her rights were violated, that search went too far, and they focused on the second of the two TLO prongs, the one about it being reasonable in scope. And what the court said was that there was no, quote, indication of danger to the students from the power of the drugs or their quantity, and no reason to suppose that Savannah was carrying the pills in her underwear. If a school is going to make the quantum leap from outer clothes and backpacks to exposure of intimate parts, the school official needs either a reasonable suspicion of danger or of resort to underwear for hiding evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, the one dissent was Justice Thomas, who argued that there was no violation at all. Uh, there was also the separate issue of qualified immunity. And in that case, even though the court said that Redding's rights had been violated, the court decided by a 6-3 to three margin that they were still nonetheless entitled to qualified immunity because the right to not be searched in that manner was not yet clearly established. So taking those pieces together, there are a few unanswered questions. So one, can you search everybody? And the answer is likely going to be no. So going back to that Justice Breyer concurrence, uh, his concurrence that it didn't test everyone implies that if it did test everyone, his vote would go another direction. 
And the circuit courts that have addressed that issue have fallen on the same line. If there's a blanket school-wide search for everybody, all students, that has been held to be unconstitutional. That's different from people doing extracurriculars. And then there's left the unopened question of, does it matter if law enforcement is involved? Because remember, we have student resource officers who are sworn law enforcement officers. They're sworn police. Uh, And the expectation, based on circuit courts that have considered it, is that if you're dealing with an SRO, a cop who is acting like a cop, someone is going to be arrested and taken downtown, uh, then traditional Fourth Amendment doctrine applies. So you need to have reasonable, uh, you need to have probable cause, you need to have a warrant, all that other stuff. Uh, It's different if the SRO is acting as an agent of the school. So he's not going to prosecute someone even if he finds something. The data stays inside of the school. In that case, it's no different than if they're being searched by a school administrator because the cop is basically taking off his badge temporarily to go do this particular search. But those are the types of issues that remain unresolved and will probably be addressed by the Supreme Court at some point in the future. Uh, But essentially, if you are an individual... They can search you as long as they have a reasonable belief that something is going on using a totality of the circumstances test, using these two prongs, that the search was justified at the exception and reasonable in scope. Uh, And then if they're doing everybody for drug testing as part of a policy of drug testing people, uh, they can do it if they're targeting people participating in extracurricular activities and they're not sharing information with law enforcement. So they're protecting your privacy, balancing your interests against the intrusion, against the governmental interest to ensure that there's an education. So I hope that all makes sense. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this particular Law 140 and how it's going to relate to Sheriff uh, Hobby down in Worth County, Georgia, please make sure to contact us online. So we're on Twitter at Fiskamall. Use the hashtag Fisk, that's hashtag F-S-C-K. And please make sure to join the conversation because that's how I found out about stories like this. This is all just from the past week, by the way. Uh, So those however many stories are just one week's worth of criminal justice fuckery. So as always, on behalf of myself and Samson laying by the table, thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a blessed week, and I will talk to you next Monday. Take care. Thank you.